Well, hello, and welcome to Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another fresh, fascinating story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, one of the most unbelievable crime stories you'll ever hear. It features two guys from Fairfield County, Connecticut, who committed five bank robberies, including a notorious one in Danbury, Connecticut, 50 years ago. They committed at least four murders, including family members. There was an attempted jailhouse break involved that went very wrong, and a disturbing kidnapping. In all, it touches western Connecticut, eastern New York State, Missouri, Maryland, and Colorado. So sit back and prepare yourself for one amazing tale. This story involves John Pardue, age 27, and his younger brother James Pardue, age 23. At least they were those ages 50 years ago. They were born in St. Louis, Missouri. Their dad, an engineer with the Shell Oil Company. He was transferred to Connecticut, and they moved to Westport, where they had an affluent upbringing in the family. But clearly there were some issues. John took a shot or two at his father with a gun, and his father took a shot or two at his wife with a gun. Well, the wife filed for divorce, and the father, J. Russell Pardue, moved back to Missouri to Union to be near his mother. The older son, John, was described by many as a sociopath. He tended to get what he wanted when he wanted it. And some say he lured his younger brother, James, into this web of crime. James lived with his wife and two children in Lusby, Maryland, before everything went bad, and both brothers had a military background with training in munitions. The crime spree began with two bank robberies, one in Lewisboro, New York, and the other in Georgetown, Connecticut. They're on opposite sides of the Connecticut-New York border. In Westchester County, New York, August 1968, the first bank robbery occurred at the Northern Westchester National Bank, where $22,000 was taken. Now, the Pardue brothers managed to get an accomplice, a gentleman named Lee Polk, to help them. They somehow got a New York State trooper to pull his car over and then, at gunpoint, ordered the trooper into the trunk of his own squad car, where they locked him in. Then they took that squad car to the Northern Westchester National Bank, and that's where they did the holdup. After the holdup, they drove the car back to where they had left their car, left the squad car with the trooper in the back, and took off with their $22,000. Well, it would be a couple of months later, in October of 1968, that the Georgetown, Connecticut bank robbery occurred. It was at the Fairfield County Trust Bank. And at this point, the Pardue brothers had brought in another accomplice, Richard Vold, to join Lee Polk. They needed a getaway car, so they saw a 19-year-old Bridgeport man driving through a remote section of Reading, Connecticut. They pulled him over and told him they were going to hijack his car. Well, then they shot him in the head and placed his body in the trunk. They then drove that car to the bank for the robbery. Well, Polk and Vold actually robbed the Georgetown Bank while the Pardue brothers sat in the car and waited for them. Well, they took the getaway car with the money, body in the trunk, and abandoned it on that desolate Reading Road. When they found the car later, the Bridgeport man had a pack of cigars crumpled under him. The cellophane said, it's a girl. 
His wife had just given birth. Well, afterwards, there was a dispute over the money. John and James shot Polk and Vold in Reading and then drove a considerable distance north to Kent, Connecticut. And there on the remote banks of the Housatonic River, they covered the bodies with brush and set them on fire. Hikers later found the bodies bound with gunshot wounds. A year later, in 1969, the Pardews visited their father and grandmother in Union, Missouri. They told them they wanted to rob the local bank, and they also wanted to use their house as a hideout. The father said absolutely not, so they shot him and killed him, and they shot and killed their grandmother as well. The Pardews this time in the heist used explosives. They destroyed the Franklin County Courthouse, where the police communication system was, and then went to the bank and robbed it of $18,000. After that, they came back to the house. Police had set up roadblocks at all the roads heading out of town, and when the reported getaway car was not seen, they decided to canvas the houses one at a time. Well, by the time they got to the father and grandmother's house, there was evidence of a quick departure. And it wasn't until a week later that the father and the grandmother, 79-year-old Daisy Pardue, were reported missing. Somehow, the Pardues managed to evade capture. Less than a year later, in February of 1970, the Pardue brothers pulled off the famous Danbury, Connecticut heist. It was Friday, February 13th, that's right, Friday the 13th, and it happened to be the end of Crime Prevention Week in Danbury. Seven days before the robbery, federal authorities say that John Pardue obtained 50 pounds of dynamite, 25 blasting caps, and an eight-second delay mechanism from a supplier in Idaho. At 10.41 that morning, February 13th, the first of the bombs blew up the Danbury police station. It destroyed the building and neutralized their bank alarms. Down the street at the iconic Union Savings Bank, two unmasked gunmen walked in at that point, announced a holdup, and while they were doing that, a customer walked in, unaware of what was going on, and was ordered to lie on the floor. John Pardue fired a couple of blasts from his gun into the ceiling to let everybody know he was serious, and they then quickly herded everybody into a back room and locked him in. On the second floor, the probate judge in Danbury had his office, and he was there that day. Somebody told him that a robbery was underway one floor down, so he had his secretary call police, but of course that was useless because at this point the bomb had already gone off and the systems were all in chaos and not working. The Pardews grabbed $26,000 in cash and $20,000 in bank traveler's checks, and at 10.44, just three minutes after that first bomb went off, they left the bank. And on their way out, they dropped a second bomb at the entrance, demolishing the interior of the bank. They ran up a side alley to a parking lot behind the bank, got in their car, and drove to a nearby strip shopping mall where they changed cars. And just for good measure, they blew up the first getaway car in that mall parking lot. The top of that car was found on the roof of a nearby building. The building was 75 feet away, and the roof of that building was 50 feet high, and again, the top of the car was found on top of that roof. That day, there were 26 injuries, most of them from cuts from flying glass. Two women had to be hospitalized overnight, but the amazing thing is that there were no fatalities. Well, the first break in the case came when John's first wife, Brenda Pardue, contacted them. 
She'd been looking for John ever since he abandoned her in Ireland, taking their infant son with him. She told police that the description of the second suspect matched his brother, James. Well, John was living on Crane Street in Danbury, and one of his neighbors also called police. He said that John had trained police dogs to kill anybody who came near him and said he had very odd behavior, and particularly in recent days. Well, it was a month after the heist, March of 1970, when John Pardue was arrested leaving his house at Crane Street. The bills in his wallet matched serial numbers robbed from the bank. That same very day, James's brother was arrested at his home in Maryland. So you might think that this story is about to wrap up after they go to court and get sent to prison. Actually, this story is just beginning. John was arrested for the Danbury bank robbery on March 7, 1970. A month later, while he's in jail, his second wife now tries to smuggle a gun to him so he could escape. Nancy Pardue brought a 45 caliber pistol and three ammo clips into the jail, and she was arrested because they found it on her before she could pass it over to her husband. She was released on a $50,000 bond for a later appearance. Well, John wasn't taking that as the final answer. He tried to bribe a guard for $5,000. And when that didn't work, he tried to bribe another guard for $10,000. That didn't work either. Finally, in March of 1971, a year later, his trial began. And believe it or not, four weeks into it, April 7th, Nancy Pardue, his wife, is permitted another visit. So she pulls into the Holiday Inn parking lot two blocks from the Bridgeport Courthouse. She leaves her infant son in the car, enters the courthouse wearing a blouse and a miniskirt, and under the blouse she had a holster under her armpit, and in it a 21-inch sawed-off rifle hidden from view. She also had 30 caliber bullets hollowed out like dum-dums in order to inflict severe damage. Well, she was allowed to see him in the cell, and sure enough, she went in and there was a mesh metal door separating them. She slid the rifle and the ammo under that flimsy separator door and left the courthouse, returning to her car to wait for her husband to join her. Three U.S. Marshals and the courthouse guard now went to the holding cell to take him upstairs for his court appearance. As they approached, John raised the rifle and pointed it at them and ordered them to stay where they were. A quick-thinking marshal drew his gun and fired five times, hitting John three times, twice in the chest and once in the arm. He fell to the ground and told them, I wouldn't have shot you. Well, cops frantically started now searching for Nancy Pardue. They found her in her car, engine running, and inside the car, her one-year-old infant, a change of clothes for a man, John's passport, and even more bullets. She was arrested again. Well, John was rushed to Park City Hospital. He underwent emergency surgery, and he lived for 22 days before dying. And during those 22 days, he made a deathbed confession. He said there had been five robberies, Lewisboro, New York, Georgetown, Connecticut, two in Missouri, and of course, the Danbury, Connecticut one. He said there had been four murders, his father, his grandmother, and the two accomplices from the robberies. Now, he claimed that the accomplices, though, were the ones who shot the 19-year-old Bridgeport man. Based on the confession, police went to James's house in Lusby, Maryland, and there they found the father and grandmother buried under a two-ton concrete floor wrapped in black plastic. They had been shot to death. 
Nancy Pardue, for her part, 10 years in prison, claimed that she had just wanted to reunite her family. Her quote, I guess I went about it all wrong. Well, while that was the end of the story for John, James still had his legal consequences to face. He had been declared mentally incompetent. Originally, he was held at a federal mental hospital in Missouri, but then was brought back to Connecticut under the assumption he would eventually face trial. Well, after six years at Middletown's Central Valley Hospital, it was deemed he was no longer a threat to society, the charges were dropped, and in 1976, he was unconditionally released. Well, now age 30, James teamed up with a 44-year-old man he had met in the psychiatric hospital, and they went to James's three-story house that he somehow managed to obtain in Kansas City, Missouri. Well, there they hatched a new plan, a plan to kidnap a prominent businessman from Kansas City. They decided to do a warm-up practice kidnapping. So on August 16, 1976, they abducted a woman. They held her in a coffin-like box in the basement of Pardue's house. Well, there, James sexually assaulted her numerous times and finally decided that he was going to try and convince her that she was his slave and he was her master, and he read her hypnosis incantations. After that, he put her in the back seat of his car and drove out to the father's old house in Union, Missouri. He stopped to talk to neighbors, and the woman jumped out of the car. James, seeing this, now sped off, and he and his new friend left Kansas City for Lakeland, Colorado. Well, we're not done yet. October 1st, 1976, James and his new friend walk into a bank in Lakeland, Colorado, claiming to be bank examiners. They said they had to speak with the bank president because there were some problems with the bank books. Well, they got the president in a conference room, pulled a pistol on him, and demanded $290,000. He agreed to get it for him, so they put the pistol back in the briefcase, and instead, the president fleed the conference room. And on his way out, they drew the pistol and fired at him, but they missed. Three days later, October 4th, 1976, James is arrested. He's charged with robbery, and by then they had figured out he was behind the sexual assault case as well. He got 10 years for unlawful restraint and 25 years for the robbery. Again, that's not all. In prison, James earned a master's degree in sociology. Seems that everybody thought he was actually finally turning around his life. And they decided to release him 10 years early from his 25-year sentence in March of 1991. This time, they placed him on parole and said he would need to do regular check-ins. Well, as you've probably figured by now, he had no intention of going to these regular check-ins and instead moved from Colorado to a place called Stanbury, Missouri. Didn't bother to tell his parole officer and, of course, missed his first scheduled parole meeting. Well, at that point, the search began. Well, they found him due to some suspicious bank account transaction in Stanbury, where he used the name of Charles Price to open his accounts. Now, Charles Price was the president of Amerabank, and he was a former ambassador to Belgium and England. The bank officials let federal officials know that they thought this was a little bit unroutine. Well, sure enough, they found James less than a month after his early release, arrested him and charged him with parole violation, and turns out he was in possession of an illegal weapon. He returned then to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary to complete his 25-year sentence. 
and just four days after getting to Leavenworth on June 14, 1991, James Pardue hanged himself at the age of 45. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also in between episodes, check out my pages on Facebook at Amazing Tales CT or Instagram, also Amazing Tales CT. That's where I place photos supplementing my podcasts. I'd love to hear from you, and please send me an idea for a story if there's anything you'd like me to look into. If you like what you heard, spread the word with your friends and family. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. (laughs) 